Well, good morning. Good morning, good morning. My name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church. I have the joy to open up God's Word with you. Would you open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 33? Before we get there, I just want to say, dads, happy Father's Day. This you can say back to me, right? (laughs) Thank you. We, We have one of the most incredible privileges on the planet. Um, We get to be one of the, if not the most powerful force in our kids' lives. I've had this crazy thought over the last couple months that has been just lingering in my brain that my life, the decisions I I make, um, will impact thousands upon thousands of people. Now, immediately you might be thinking to yourself, um, horizontally, if you will, like, oh, the people in our life. No, I'm just talking about my kids and my kids' kids and my kids' kids' kids, my grandkids, my great-grandkids, and the way I live my life will reverberate for generations and generations. And so all the more reason, no pressure, dads, but we need Jesus. This is where you can give me an amen on that one, right? Because there's a lot at stake in how we love our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. So I just want to just take a minute and say, dads, we have an incredibly high calling. We love you guys. In order to honor you, um, not only do we just pray for and try to build in with the Word of God the men of our lives, but this morning we have bacon, and we are very excited (laughs) for that. It's actually one of my favorite things every year at Village Church is is, uh, our hospitality team and a bunch of you just make every every kind of bacon you can possibly imagine. And uh, also after the service, we just have a bunch of games and fun stuff planned um, just to lighten up our hearts a little bit. If you've got kids or grandkids, or maybe you just want to throw a frisbee and have some fun, uh, we're going to do that after, after the service. So I want to invite you to stay around. All right. Jacob, Genesis 33. This is the final message on the life of Jacob today. This is the culmination of his story. Eight weeks in, um, you have been asking, can the, can the life of Jacob and all of its joy and optimism go on and on and on? Just kidding. Nobody, nobody said that. Today in Genesis 33, we're going to come face to face With Jacob, as he faces after 20 years, his brother, who last time he saw him, vowed to himself and everyone else that he would kill Jacob. The brother's name is Esau. And uh, these are older men. Actually, by the time this story takes place, they're probably over 90 years old. Um, Jacob is going to find himself forced through circumstance to face his brother again. He's very nervous. He does not know what's going to happen. After 20 years, a man can change a lot. And sometimes that's not always for the better. And so as Esau is going to come face to face with Jacob, he has no idea who the man is after 20 years. As Jacob comes face to face with his brother Esau, Jacob has no idea whether or not bitterness has been stewing and stewing in his heart over these last years. Now, we're going to watch a relationship that has been profoundly broken for decades be mended today. And as we watch relationships mend, we do need to define some terms. What I want to do this morning as we start off is I want to define our terms. These are going to be very helpful terms for you to get your head around Jacob and Esau, but they're also going to be really helpful terms as you think about interpersonal conflict in your own life. All right, so here are the terms. Here's the first decision, the first term, the first concept. Um, go back with me to the first decision. It should be in the, and it is called releasing. This is a personal decision to prevent internal corruption. So if you are the offended, 
you have to make a decision very quickly after you're defended to release this thing. This is not forgiveness. This is not reconciliation. This is not restoration. This is a decision that a person makes in their own heart and soul so that bitterness does not corrupt you. You all know this. When you are the offended party, right, bitterness wants to creep in and wants to corrupt you from the inside out. And here's what releasing says. It says this, I will not let, I should say, let this sin or offense corrupt me. I will not let this corrupt me. I will not do it. The second decision that the offended has to make, these are again categories that are good to know, is this, is forgiveness. Forgiveness is not something you just do randomly. Forgiveness is actually, biblically speaking, an exchange between two parties where one person asks for forgiveness and then the other person grants for forgiveness. It's an actual exchange. It is a moment in time. Forgiveness says, I accept your apology. I will not bring this up again. And I will try and release my negative emotions. Um, Some people stop right here. Um, but the mature Christian understands that there is more vocabulary and more decisions that we have to make for God's will to really happen when you have uh, two people whose relationship is broken. Here's the third one. The third one is reconciliation. This is the act of two parties moving forward in actual relationship. Uh, This, by the way, in a Christian community, in a local church, every single brother and sister in Christ should be able to get to this point. This is almost a prerequisite if you're going to be living in a community together. And reconciliation says, let's move forward and be in community together. Uh, Both parties have released the negative emotions. They've released all of that stuff inside of them. And they're agreeing that we're going to be in the same church family together. And we're going to do this in a way that brings God glory. Many people stop here, and many relationships probably should stop here, Uh, but there is another level. There is another decision that should be made, Uh, and here's the fourth decision. This decision is one of restoration. Restoration is when you put things back to normal. In fact, when a relationship has been broken and restoration occurs, more times than not, the, the relationship is much stronger afterwards than it was at the beginning. Restoration is actually something very, very, very few believers actually get to watch happen in churches. Why? Because very few people get past the first decision, which is the decision to just release to release it, your, uh, the, the bitterness, to release the anger, to let it go and not let it corrupt you. If you get to stage four, decision four here, that two parties willing to be restored to one another, this is a God move and God gets all of the glory for it 100% of the time. Restoration says it is as if it never happened. Now, is it ever this cut and dry? Never, ever, ever. These are categories to help you think in. And by and large, what you're going to find is you might have a broken relationship somewhere in your life and you're going to be in one of these decisions in one of these stages and you have to go before the Lord and say, okay, Lord, what decision do I have to make in this stage? Do I have to release this right now? Do I have to forgive? Maybe somebody asks you for forgiveness. You said it with your mouth, but your heart did not mean it at all. And you got to go back to stage two, right? Uh, This is is an opportunity for you to kind of place yourself relationally as you think about the relationships in your life that might be broken. Now, let's go back to Jacob and Esau. Questions loom over their relationship in Genesis 33. So, for example, the releasing question, has Esau been corrupted through bitterness? I mean, we left this man, he was raging, publicly vowing to kill his brother. It's been 20 years. 
That question looms over this text. Forgiveness. Will Jacob ask for forgiveness? Reconciliation. Can Jacob and Esau even be reconciled? I mean, you got to remember what Jacob did is one of the lowest things I've ever seen or heard or read of a human being doing, not just to his brother, but to his father as well. Restoration. I mean, should the two be restored? Can the two be restored? I mean, this is, these are big questions that loom over this text. And so let's get some, some context here. Uh, we find Jacob in Genesis 33. Number one, Jacob is really stressed. Uh, in fact, the word that the text used in Genesis 32 is that he's distressed. He is overwhelmed. He is pressured. He was leaving his uncle Laban, who wanted to kill him, running to uh, his brother Esau, who also had vowed to kill him. He is overwhelmed. He has nothing. He has no army. And he's about to, he believes, lose everything, probably his life and the life of his children and servants and, and wives. He is petrified. He's petrified because he actually believes he's probably going to die. He is also exhausted. Do you guys remember what happened last week? Jacob spent all night long, all night long, wrestling with who it turned out to be God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, all night long, until finally Jacob gave up, confessed his sin. Jesus broke his body so that he would have a permanent limp. Um, A couple days ago, I camped out with my children and some friends, and let me just say, um, I slept a few hours, and I was still exhausted for the next day. This guy's been up all night long, overwhelmed, exhausted, petrified, distressed. He is not in his best emotional state. The Lord had to bring him to his lowest point finally to get him to confess his sin. And so here's what we have. We have this man who is overwhelmed and he is about to face his brother whom last he knows wants him dead. Open up your Bibles, Genesis 33 verse 1. Here's what it says. Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked. What, What just happened? He just got done wrestling with God all night long. The wrestling match is over. God gives him a new name. The name is, by the way, not Jacob, but Israel. He gets a brand new name, a brand new identity, confesses his sin. And you're wondering as the reader, like, is this interaction with God going to actually change the man? Like, is he going to be a new man after this? Can a 90-year-old man learn new tricks at that age? That's, that's the question that looms over this, over this text. Here's what it says. He picks up his eyes and it says, behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. Let's go back to the questions. Who has Esau become in 20 years? By the way, what does 400 men tell you if you're afraid he wants to kill you? He's coming for you, your life, and everything you own. Question number two is Jacob encountered a real, genuine life change at all? Let's look what happens. Verse one goes on. So he, Jacob... He divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front. Okay, let's let's be clear. If there's a battle, who do you put in front? Children? Women? No, right? So what we've already found in the last chapter is that he had taken all of his family, his servants, his wives, his children, he broke them up into two camps. He put one in one place, the others in another place, and he stayed behind all of them. And he thought to himself, well, if one of them dies, I'll still have the other ones left over. 
Okay? That's the kind of man that we left before he wrestled in Genesis chapter 32. Then he wrestles with God, and now here's what you're wondering. Did his wrestling match change him at all in any way, shape, or form? Verse 2 says this. He put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph, last of all, go figure, the ones he likes the best. They're at the back of it, but they're still in front of him, or at least that's where we left. And then verse 3 Verse 3 is actually this short little statement at the beginning that tells you so much about what's happening in this guy's heart. Here's what it says. He himself went on before him, before them. You, You need to understand this. Jacob had no intention before his wrestling match of going in front of his family. He had every intention to allow one half of his family and his servants to be killed and then to flee and to run away with the other half. That was the plan. And so the old Jacob, he would have put everyone in front of him. Apparently the new Jacob, there's something about the new Jacob that's fundamentally different. The old Jacob was a plotter, a planner, a grappler. And we're going to watch as this story unfolds. You're going to see the new Jacob actually has an incredibly different posture. Look how verse 3 unfolds. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. I want you to, I want you to know something about the story of Jacob. This is the first time, 90 years of living, this is the first recorded time that Jacob has had an ounce of humility and been willing to take the submissive position. Never before. When a stubborn, broken, old man meets Jesus for real, let me tell you what happens. Humility. Let's just play this out. So the the idea here is that he sees Esau in the distance. And as he walks towards him, he sees that Esau is moving fairly quickly. There's 400 men. There's a lot. He gets in front of everybody, and he gets on his knees. He lays his body down, completely prostrate, gets up seven times, takes more steps forward, gets down, puts his body forward. That is what happens when the man of God meets Jesus for the first time. The man of God gets on his face before the ones he has broken and sinned against and violated, and he gets on his face and he takes a posture of humility and brokenness. You cannot tell me in this short little verse that somehow Jacob has not had a profound experience after he has personally encountered the living living Jesus Christ. He bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Verse 4, to me, is one of the most suspenseful moments in all of the Bible. It reads quick, okay? But if you just allow yourself to play this out, this is a five to ten minute drama in real life that is unfolding, maybe, maybe even more. And here's what it says. But Esau ran. Now, so you know he's running in the direction of Jacob. Now, I want you to fill in the blank for me here. What verbs do you think the author would have used? But Esau ran and blank him, and blank on his neck, and blank him, and they blank. I've got some words. Killed, slaughtered, sliced, diced, impaled, humiliated. Right? 
Watch the verbs. But Esau ran. He ran to meet him. I just, I just visualizing this in my brain. And he embraced him, and he fell on his neck in a good way, by the way. And he kissed him, and they wept. Twenty years. Four hundred men for that overkill, bro. Why well, didn't know what you were gonna do? <laughs> and I'm ready to kill you, and I'm ready to reconcile. <laughs> like, what's it gonna be? Can you just savor this? This is a moment that has been made over a lifetime. The moment Jacob comes out of the womb, what's he doing? Grabbing onto Esau's heel. I want first. I want best. They're in the womb. And I imagine Esau's like, I'm going to suck my thumb. And Jacob's like, no, I'm going to fight you in the womb. And from the very beginning, Jacob made this guy's life miserable. Always grappling. Always fighting. The Lord took Jacob to his lowest to get him to this point. Verse 5, when Esau lifted up his eyes and he saw the women and children, I love this, he doesn't even see them. His eyes have just been on his brother. He says, who are these with you? And Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Uh, Two things here. Number one, all of his family is watching. I mean, this is public. You who like to repent privately, sometimes that's just not always possible. There are some things that everyone in your life, they need to see. But I want you to notice the words at the end, your servant. If, if you remember the perk, the privilege of having the birthright, which Jacob stole from his brother, is everyone is your servant. And the way it was supposed to function is that because Jacob was younger, he was supposed to be the servant of Esau, but he stole the birthright. He tricked him out of it. He got it from him. He took advantage of him at his worst moment. He got it from him. And this infuriated Esau. But here's what happens. I I want you to watch this. He actually puts himself in the submissive position, and he acknowledges Esau's rightful place to be the leader of their siblings, the patriarch of their family. Now, God has a different story, but relationally in this moment, you know someone has been broken. You know that someone has had a true encounter with God. You know humility is taking over because they're making restitution. And you're going to watch, you're going to watch this very subtly but very pointly in the text. What Jacob is going to do is he's going to make right the things that he took. In Genesis 27, 29, um, this was a prophecy given to Jacob, be lord of your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. In Genesis 27, 40, this was said to Esau, by your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. Jacob was a grappler through and through and through until he meets Jesus, and Jesus breaks him and takes him to his lowest. But Jacob is not done. I want you to watch this. Jacob is now going to give Esau a whole lot more back. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and they bowed down. Leah, likewise, and her children drew near, and they bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you, what do you mean by all this company that I meet? Who are all these people? you got to remember, Esau knows nobody in this whole crew whatsoever. This is one of the greatest family reunions you have ever seen. It's so beautiful. Jacob answered, to find favor 
in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. There's actually this interesting dynamic where uh, it's a little confusing, and I don't know where I land on this yet, but we know that Jacob came forward originally uh, in Genesis 32, one chapter before, and they had a whole bunch of animals that he was going to give to Esau as a present, right? As, as sort of like a, hey man, are we cool? Can I just come by and you not kill me? It was, a, it was a manipulative act to try to take advantage of his brother so his brother wouldn't like kill him or something. Now what's interesting is that in the text, it almost appears that not only does he come forth with all of these animals, it almost seems as if he is taking his entire family and saying, you're in charge. Birthright is yours. Everything that I have, it's for you. You're the leader. I know what the birthright says, but I'm giving it back to you. It's actually this really interesting tension that happens. Now, this doesn't make sense culturally, but if you understand the the nature of this context and birthrights and blessings, this actually makes an incredible amount of sense because whoever had the birthright was in charge of everybody else. What they said went. It came with power, authority, and that's what Jacob had stolen from him, but he's giving it back. Esau said in verse 9, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no. Please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. I love this. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. I want to I dig into this. So a person's face tells you exactly how they feel often, especially if you're brothers. I can look at my brother's face, and I can tell you for the most part what those guys are feeling. When Jacob wrestled with God and the wrestling match was over and he was able to see Jesus face, for, face to face in that moment, apparently whatever he experienced was one of acceptance and of kindness despite himself. So that now when he sees Esau and he looks in his face, even though he's got 400 men, the moment he looks in his eyes, he knows my brother is not here to kill me, but he's for me. And he thinks to himself, the first thing he thinks when he sees his brother's eyes, the last time I saw that was when I looked into the eyes of Jesus Christ who accepted me and loved me despite what I've done. He says, I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. I think internally, like you ask the question, how does a man like Esau get to this place? Time does not heal all wounds, by the way. Somewhere over the last 20 years, Esau had to make a decision to release. He had to make a decision to not let the betrayal or the offense that he had experienced corrupt his own soul. Now, I want to put on the screen here. He didn't actually say, but it's what I imagine he said. I might have been the one betrayed, but Jacob's problem is with God, not with me. Somehow, sometime, Esau had to rise above the offense and just say, anybody willing to betray my father and me, blood like this, their issues go so deep, it honestly probably has nothing to do with me. And somehow, Esau was able to get himself to the point that when he saw his brother humbled and prostrated before him, he saw everything he needed to know to know that this was not the same man that left him 20 years ago. Let's talk so what's. If I'm Jacob, will I really repent? If I'm Esau, will I really forgive? 
Um, what I want to do is I want to take just some cues from what these two men did. And first what I want to do is show you the marks of a truly repentant person. And these are things that we can just learn from what happened to Jacob. Here's number one. They deal with their sin against God first. Truly repentant people have an encounter with God first. They understand that what's going on between you and me and me and you, my sin that I have committed against you has a deeper root and a bigger problem, and that is my relationship with God is broken. This is going to be at the core of the truest, deepest heart repentance. If someone says, I'm sorry to you before they've made things right with God, right? It's superfluous and it will last for a while. But what we're looking for really deep down in the core of our being is true, true heart change, which comes when we deal with God first. Number two, they approach the offended with self-reflective Humility. It's interesting, initially his gifts were one of manipulation until he met God, until he wrestled with God, and then the very nature of what he was offering to his brother shifted. It actually became a sign of restitution and humility, and he starts giving him back the authority and the privileges of the birthright. In a while, we'll see that he actually tries to give back the perks and privileges of the blessing as well. But he comes with this understanding of what he did. As he encountered God, he was able to understand what he had done to other people. And it became so much more clear. It wasn't just defrauding my brother and my father. It was actually something bigger that I did to God. And because God and I were broken, I was able to do these kinds of things to the people that I love the most. But they approached the offended with self-reflective humility. I'm sorry, I cannot think of a more humble approach than to prostrate yourself flat on your face on the ground seven times until you come face to face with your brother who has 400 men ready ready to kill you. Number three, they measurably make right what they wronged. The birthright, the authority, he gave it back. Look at verse 11. Look what happens. He said, please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. It's interesting, in the language he's using, by the way, these are the exact same words. You don't talk about the word blessing when you stole the blessing from your brother, right? You don't use these words flippantly and lightly, and he comes back to him, and here's what he's doing. He's making restitution. He's realizing, I have taken so much from you, and in this, this narrative, he is giving back not just the birthright, but the blessing, If the Lord is going to use him, he's not going to do it through trickery and grappling and deception. He's going to do it because the Lord will bless Jacob however he wants to do it. But he doesn't need to cheat and fraud his brother and his father just to get it. Number four, they trust the Lord as they humble themselves. Repentance is costly. Amen? The deeper the sin, the greater the cost. Unfortunately, the deeper the sin, the more we try to hide so we don't have to face the cost. The cost for Jacob was losing not just his life, but his wife and his children and his servants and everything he had. And Esau, culturally speaking, had every single right to come in and obliterate all of them, take all the wealth and kill all the people, and the FBI and the police are not going to come knocking on his door and do anything about it. He had every right to do this. And when Jacob walks towards him with his face on the ground, there is no more vulnerable position than 400 men and your brother, who, by the way, is a warrior skilled with the sword and a hunter, right? 
Like, I'm sorry, when a hunter and a farmer without guns get in a fight, who wins? The hunter. No offense, farmers, but the hunter wins. And so this, there's no winning here. There's no winning. But he had to trust the Lord as he humbled himself. I cannot control the consequences or the outcomes, but doggone it, if Jacob was going to die, he was going to die humble and submissive. Let's talk about the marks of a truly forgiving person. It's interesting in this whole story, who's the hero? Esau. Who saw that coming? They are ready to forgive on a dime. Do you remember how, way back earlier in the story, Jacob was ready to exploit Esau on a dime? Like Esau comes in the house and he's like, I'm so hungry, I'm going to die. And he's like, sell me your birth right now. Wow, that was pretty quick. Like you were waiting for an opportunity. It's interesting because the truly forgiving person is ready. Without condition, without stipulation, they are ready to forgive on a dime. I love how Esau, he just runs to his brother. And as he runs, his heart is already fully prepared with weeping and kissing and hugging and wrestling like, wouldn't this just be an amazing sight to see two 90-year-old men doing this? Their whole life finally comes together in this moment. But number two, they are prepared for the worst. Esau was smart to bring 400 men with him because he knows what his brother is capable of. Preparing for the worst doesn't mean you're ready to use the worst. It just means that your heart is prepared because sometimes you can run towards somebody and they don't want to run back at you. But number three, when they see true humility... They forgive and they reconcile quickly. The moment, if you're offended, and the moment you see humility, here's what we do. We forgive and we reconcile as quickly as humanly possible. Humility is one of the most beautiful things when there is a a broken relationship and you see humility in someone else. Take that. It is one of the most astounding fruits of the Spirit. I love it. Number four, They live reconciliation quickly. Uh, I want you to watch what happens here. Verse 12, it's, it's a little subtle, but it's really meaningful. It says, Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. Now who turns their back to the other in the most vulnerable positions? He says, Not only will I lead you, but he puts himself in a position where he is vulnerable before the person who had been his enemy for over 90 90 years. As we come to the communion table, as we finish in the last couple minutes and the last sermon in the life of Jacob, uh, I want to bring us to our third, so what? And what I just found so interesting about the life of Jacob is I wanted Jacob to be the Christ figure. You know what I mean? I wanted him to be the one who represented Jesus. And the whole time, the whole time, it's Esau who shows us the most vivid and beautiful picture of Jesus in this whole story. And as I get to the end of this, I keep thinking to myself, I'm Jacob. Esau, Esau represents Jesus. Esau is a vivid portrait of Jesus who runs to the humble and to the broken. In a few minutes, we're going to celebrate communion. We're going to partake of these elements, and the elements are just elements. They have no magical properties. It's like baptism or child dedication. There's no magical properties to this. But Jesus said that when you gather together, I want you to do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of what I have done for you. While you were enemies, I ran after you. 
while you were in rebellion and sin. Before you even approached me, I took the motion toward you. And when I think about Esau running, weeping, throwing his arms around his brother, I just imagine um, the day for many of us in this room where you trusted in Jesus for the first time and the Lord you knew it was okay and he poured out his affection and love and forgiveness and restoration, reconciliation to you the moment you trusted in Jesus. Some of you are new with us and, and um, communion can be pretty awkward actually for people who are new to church. And I want to share with you a, a few details about how we do communion here. If you've trusted in Christ, if you have believed that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again from the dead, if you believe that salvation is not by being good enough, but it's through faith in Jesus, I just want to take a moment. I want to say, would you, first of all, we're so glad you're here, but would you just partake of communion with us? We are one body in Jesus Christ. If you have had the moment where you have humbly prostrated yourself before Jesus Christ and asked his forgiveness for your sins through faith, I'm just so glad you're here and we are brothers and sisters. Some of you are here and you have never, ever, ever trusted in Christ. You have never submitted yourself and humbled yourself and you are still Jacob. You're not Israel yet. You are still grappling and grappling and fighting. And I just have uh, just a plea for you who are still grappling. The only way for grapplers to come to Christ is often when God has to intervene and break them. And my, my just two cents for you is I would just so much prefer you humble yourself and come to Christ rather than him have to humble you. And if the Lord is going to get your heart, he's going to get it in one way or another. And I'm just a fan of the easy way instead of the hard way. Sometimes people say, well, I have to learn the hard way. I think that's dumb. And I don't think you should say that anymore because you're just making your life really, really hard. Why don't we learn the easy way? This is the very nature of coming to Christ as we say, I'm not taking the hard way anymore. I'm going to let him show me the way of Jesus Christ, which is so much more beautiful. I don't want to see you broken. I don't want to see the Lord take you to nothing so that you can finally see the true state of your heart. I want to see you come to Christ humbly with a submissive heart, professing faith in Jesus Christ, confessing your sins, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. And I want to see Jesus run to you like Esau ran to Jacob as he had that spirit and that heart of humility. And today, if you are ready to trust in Christ, I want to just say, first of all, don't wait. Today's the day. Now is the moment. You can pray in your head. You can pray out loud. You can come talk to us after one of the services. We'd love to pray with you. But it is not magic. It is, do you believe? Have you confessed your sins? Do you believe that Jesus Christ has died on the cross and rose again from the dead? Do you believe that he did that for you? If that is where you're at today, I just have great news for you. The promise of God is the following thing. Number one, forgiveness. Number two, reconciliation with himself. Number three, the promise of restoration where God makes you more and more into the image of Jesus. And that is an image that is definitely one you want to be made into. The promises of God are that he will give you his Holy Spirit, that he will never leave you or forsake you. And if that's a decision that you want to make today, I just want to personally invite you to trust in Christ. And if that's a decision you want to make, here's the, one of the, my favorite things that I ask people to do who are ready to trust in Christ. We're going to pass these elements And when these elements come by, I want to ask you just, would you take it? And as you partake of this element, let this partaking be your personal declaration that you have confessed your sins, you believe Jesus is your Savior, you believe he died on the cross for your sins, you believe that he was raised again uh, from the dead on the third day, and you believe he's coming back again. 
Uh, Let your partaking of these elements be your first personal declaration of your faith in Jesus. Here's how we do this at Village Church. Um, In a couple minutes, the ushers are going to come by and they're going to hand out the elements. Before that, we're going to have a time of silence. Uh, This is an opportunity for you to listen, to talk to God. Maybe this is the time where you have some serious things you need to confess before the Lord and it's just going to be a time to go before him and and speak to him. And at the the end of that, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing a song together and, and that's when the ushers will hand out the elements. Would you just hold on to them until the end of the song? At the end of the song, I'm going to come up and I'm going to read some scripture to you and then we are going to partake together as a symbol of our unity in Jesus. Sound good? Let's have a moment and talk to God alone.